Today, I interview Alan Labinovitz. Alan, who was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast, is a professor of religion at James Madison University and the author of the book, Natural. All right, Alan. So thanks so much. Sorry again about the delay. Um, uh, where are you based, by the way? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Very nice. That's that's becoming places like that are are where people want to live these days. I feel like less so less so New York City where I am. Yeah, well, it's a nice. You know, I miss Chicago. I was in Chicago for seven years, but I, I do really like it here. It's a it's got sort of a small town feel, but it's got a university. It's a nice place to be. Very cool. Yeah, I wouldn't mind having more space. Yeah. Um, Understood. So, so could you, for my sake, for our sake, could you take a minute or a few minutes to introduce yourself in terms of your work and what you're all about? Sure. So I'm a professor in the philosophy and religion department at James Madison University, which is in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, my PhD, so my area of expertise, was in classical Chinese philosophy. So I wrote my dissertation on a Chinese philosopher named Zhuangzi. Um, or a book named the Zhuangs, I guess. And let me interrupt. If you see me looking over here, it's not because I'm watching TV. I'm, I'm just writing this down. Okay. Sure. Sure. Understood. No okay. worries, man. Um, yeah. So I, I was very interested in that when I, when I originally, when I was an undergrad, I wanted to study bioethics. So I was very interested in bioethics. And I realized that the philosophy classes I was taking, there was a, there was a lot missing in my opinion. And what was missing was attention to the ways of talking that persuade people to believe a lot of things. Um, so there's, you know, philosophy for various good reasons, like the sciences, excludes all sorts of forms of persuasion in hopes of, you know, coming up with a way of talking about what's true that allows a community to arrive at objective conclusions about whatever it happens to be. Um, whereas I was, I think, more interested in how people end up believing what they do, which is obviously not always through logical persuasion or through reason applied to evidence. And that meant that I wanted to study religion as well. And I ended up doing a philosophy and religion major, really loved this classical Chinese book in part because it combined all of these modes of persuasion. So it had everything from myths and parables, you know, sort of the way that you, you see this a little bit in, in classical Greek philosophy as well. But this book was really, really interesting to me. It was about persuasion. It was about belief and it used a lot of different genres. And so I was a religion and literature PhD, which is to say, um, you know, I looked at all sorts of ways of getting people to believe what you want them to believe and affecting people's worldview. I, I was very, admiring of authors like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, especially who are sort of from the same kind of British school who, who wrote it in a lot of different ways, right? They wrote essays, they wrote academic books, they wrote children's books, they did radio shows, they did fiction and nonfiction. I really liked the thought of reaching people in all those ways. And long story short, I have been able to return to my interest in the intersection of religion, philosophy, and science. And so now, I see my sort of career as moving away from the kind of classical Chinese stuff that I still teach and love and find very fascinating towards um, public facing discussions of 
what what science is and how it intersects with belief and our worldviews and the way in which the tools of religious studies, so analysis of myth, analysis of ritual, can help us to understand contemporary debates about who to trust and how we should live. And that's why I ended up writing my first book about food. So the gluten lie, which was basically a look at four different foods, fat, salt, sugar, and gluten, um, and applying the tools of religious studies to show that contemporary food taboos are actually a lot like religious food taboos in certain interesting ways. And then the second book I wrote, which I discussed a little bit on, on Rogan, um, about the meaning of natural and naturalness and how the idea of what's natural substitutes in many ways, in my opinion, for uh, what used to be religious ideas. So that's a, that's a long, that was a lot, but that's a, that's a good place to start for, for me and my background when it comes to what I research and how I think about things. What's a central belief of yours that's like an Alan Levinowitz uh, belief that, that people that disagree with you a lot or that, you know, they've now come to see as true? Like what, 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 what's an idea out there that you've really gotten behind that either was controversial, is controversial, that, that you feel as, you know, proud of d- discovering or bringing light to? Well, I, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, is I there guess. What, is, there something, is there something you hang your hat on? You know, you say, yeah, well, I mean, there is something I hang my hat on. You know, I, I, food I, and religion and people yeah. don't think this way. And this is how I yeah. felt. And, yeah. So, so one thing, one thing I would say, one thing I hang my hat on is I think that the virtue of being able to say, I don't know is underrated. And I wish people, myself included, but everyone were more comfortable uh, with saying, I don't know. I think that is the truth in in many more cases than we would think. And I think a kind of a, a comfort and an admiration of people who are willing to say, I don't know, and also people willing to admit that they are wrong is, is really important and not nearly present enough in in our in in in, in general, um, so that's something I really hammer on all the time is the importance of being able to say I don't know. I totally agree, and and I listened to your podcast, and and a lot of it really resonated with me. Like I, I firmly see and believe that a lot of people, and, and at times in my life, myself included, have an idea that then becomes part of their ego or part of the identity. And and the problem with that is that, you know, how can you see the truth in anything? if an idea is part of who you are, because then to reject that idea would be to reject a core part of yourself, whereas ideas should, should be separate from us, right? And yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, so that's one of the things I'm interested in too, is the, to what extent is um, your ability, and I don't mean that in a kind of, you're better if you're able to say, I don't know, because one of the things I've also come to conclude is that the ability to say, I don't know, is in part related to, you know, who you are and where you're coming from. So when you're in pain, often existential pain or physical pain, it's not as easy to say, I don't know, because you are very, very invested in knowing in a way that, you know, so, you know, what's well, a good example of this? If, let's say, let's take long COVID, right? Which is something that I've written a lot about. I wrote a really long piece for Vice about this recently. Um, what's going on with long COVID? Is it, you know, on one end, you've got people saying it's totally made up. This is all misattribution of symptoms to COVID. It's basically psychogenic illness. On the other end, you've got people saying this is just a huge problem. We've got millions of people who are going to be chronically ill for the rest of their lives because of, you know, downstream effects of the, the, the COVID-19 virus. So who's right? Well, I, personally, 
I, the answer is, I don't know. We don't know. We just don't know yet. That's just it. Uh, no one should feel strongly about this particular issue, in my opinion, simply because we just don't, we don't have enough evidence. We haven't looked at it for long enough. So, but at the same time, if you're someone who's very sick, that's not a great place to land. I don't know is very frustrating. It's very scary. If you are someone who's scared of becoming sick, I don't know is not a very reassuring place. If you've got cancer, I don't know is not a, you know, why did I get cancer? I don't know is not a great place to land. So uh, uh, along with my own belief in the importance of being able to say, I don't know for experts and lay people, I also understand that sometimes it's hard to say that. And I need to be aware of that and sympathetic to the, the, the kinds of life situations that make it more difficult to say, I don't know. I see. And so you strive to have the humility and open-mindedness to be wrong, to seek truth, right? To, to, to admit when you don't know. Yeah. I mean, I want to be able to admit when I don't know. And, and also, and also I think show how that's an important part of the, the collective truth-making process that we're all now for better or worse involved in. And this is something else that I'm interested in is the way in which there's a shift from backstage expert discussions of truth that the public would never have seen. I mean, we know, you know, you don't see experts debating scientific theories usually behind the scenes. This is the kind of thing in the eighties or seventies or any time before social media would just happen at some conference, you'd never, you, they would all yell at each other. There'd be a lot of uncertainty. And then you'd get the kind of statement of the experts. And that's what the public would see. Now we're watching those debates happen in real time and the public can participate. They can talk about how they think this expert is unreliable or that expert is unreliable. And so that shift from backstage to front stage debates over what's true is also really interesting to me. And I think I don't know needs to be a part of that as well. I mean, it's good to, that it's more front stage. No, I'm not, it's not a good or bad thing necessarily. There are ways in which it's good. Um, I like that, I, you know, transparency is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot, like sustainability or biodiversity, which, you know, well, who's against it? Well, they, no one's really against it. I mean, transparency is good, right? You want to hold people accountable. You want to be able to see their data, yada, yada, yada. At the same time, so that's good. That part's good. And I like that, you know, it's good. It's empowering to feel like you can participate in and correct expert discourse. It's nice not to be talked down to. All that stuff is good. At the same time, Experts are experts for good reason. Um, and you're not always in a position as a layperson to understand or devote enough time to the topic that experts are uh, weighing in on. And it's also not necessarily good. I'll take an example, hydroxychloroquine. This guy, Didier Raoul, I don't know how much you followed that debate, but he's this French, uh, I think he's, in, I wanna say he's a virologist. I think he's a French virologist. Um, at any rate, Raul came out, he's this very famous guy. He's discovered all kinds of things. He discovered like the biggest virus in the world or something. And he was like, hydroxychloroquine is great. I've run this study, it's terrific. The establishment's trying to suppress me. So he went to social media and was like, look, they're trying to suppress me. I'm gonna put my data out into the public. Is that a good thing? I'm not sure that that's a good thing. The establishment exists because there are certain methods in place to make sure that you can't just put out your badly done study and claim all kinds of truths based on it, right? And in retrospect, that, that sucked. He was wrong. He's still suing people over this. So there are ways in which I think front stage can reward social media grandstanding or making really controversial or contrarian points can be rewarded 
in the public arena in a way that at least in theory, academia is set up to, to disincentivize. So there's, there's, there's pros and cons um, with, that, with that kind of thing. And I think it's important to not just see it as kind of one or the other. Yeah, there's this really interesting push and pull between, and I have an opinion on this and I certainly want to hear yours of, you know, on one hand, we want the right answers out there. We don't want conspiracy theories. We don't want false answers. But on the other hand, we certainly don't want to neglect opinions because ironically, um, by trying to seek just the truth and only the truth, ironically can lead to falsehoods because then you're saying, well, that's false. Let's not listen to that one. It might be true. So I think it's tricky to decide, okay, well, we don't want to let in too much BS, but we can't prohibit everything that we don't think is true because what if it is? So um, where do you think the line is? I mean, I, uh, in limiting free speech, I mean, is it, is it the case that, you know, if we know something to be definitely false, that we would abstain, you know, ban that? Or wh- where do you think that line is? Is my question well well articulated, first of all? Well, well, I'm happy to talk about free speech and the way in which we decide what does or doesn't get allowed. I mean, that depends on, that depends on the arena, right? So for example, let's ta- I'll, ta- I'll take a really easy example. Let's take cre- young earth creationism. Um, should Twitter and Facebook suppress all discussion of young earth creationism? In my opinion, absolutely not. I think they should allow, of course, it would be crazy to censor people who want to argue that the Bible is literally true. I just think is is not a good move for Twitter and Facebook. However, should should high school and middle school, you know, public schools, um, should that be, should creation science be banned from biology textbooks in public schools? Should it ever be in a biology classroom in a public university? No. And so in an interesting way, here I'm actually saying that private businesses, in this case, Facebook and Twitter, should not be in the business of censoring this theory, whereas public institutions, in this case again, I think you need to take everything on a case-by-case basis, are well within their rights to not allow discussions of creation science in the classroom. It's useless. It does not advance biology. So, so it, whenever we're talking about free speech, I think it's really important to ask, okay, well, what, what's the thing we're talking about? It, what's the particular topic or the particular kind of information? And then what, what context are we talking about suppressing it or prohibiting it in? Um, so generally, and I, I bring up that example because I think it's helpful. Generally, I'm more wary of governments su- suppressing speech than private corporations. And yet in this particular case, it seems clear to me that an arm of the government, namely public education, should be suppressing creation science in biology classrooms while these private corporations shouldn't, if, the, if that's a helpful example, I think. So interesting, so I, I can understand. So I don't think there's any contradiction in saying that private institutions should not ban information, public institutions should. Um, the question, you know, the follow-up question of, you know, why shouldn't Facebook ban this and why should they, that's a separate question, but innately, I don't think there's any contradiction there, right? If you're saying that, you know, one type of institution is meant for this type of information, you know, it should, you know, public should ban this and private should not ban it. But what I am wondering is, I, I think you said that on one hand, public institutions should not ban information. However, a certain arm being education should. So how do you reconcile the, the point yeah. public where they should or shouldn't? 
Well, so what I mean is, so, so public, public education is a branch of government institutions. So when I say government, I, I generally speaking, I'm wary of the government suppressing speech more than I'm wary of private corporations suppressing speech as a general rule, but in practice that gets really complicated. So again, for example, I said public schools shouldn't be teaching creationism. There's nothing where if someone says, wait, you're, you're censoring us and suppressing free speech by not allowing creation science in the biology textbooks. I think it's nonsense. I think it's a terrible argument. That said, if the government got in the business of saying that you're not, that it is illegal to sell books about creation science, I would think that was beyond the pale. That's terrible. That's even worse than Twitter and Facebook banning wow. it. Um, so there's the, the, for me, I mean, this is guess something else that I would hang my hat on is that almost always these issues are very complicated and reducing them to anything reducing them to the kind of simple maxims that you often see on Twitter or on bumper stickers is not helpful. It's just, it's just not as simple as, you know, freedom is always better or censorship when people are being harmed is always good. And so I like to take things more and more in my old age. I like to look at very specific examples of things and, and think about them as contextually and as based in reality as possible. The more we get into broad slogans about what's right or wrong, I think that the, the easier it is to, to lose sight of important facts on the ground. And as I think you have said, I'm, I'm gonna misquote you, but there's a strong importance of nuance. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that that can sound like a cliche, right? Like sometimes people are like, oh, there's both sides. Where are you gonna nuance slavery? Um, and you know, it's funny. Are you gonna nuance slavery? Well, I think there is room for, for nuance in discussions of slavery writ large, which is to say there are scholars of slavery out there. They've looked at the way in which humans have enslaved other humans for, you know, I don't know, since the, be the beginning of recorded history. Um, and yet there are differences between different, different kinds of slavery. I talked about this a little bit on Rogan, like the, the chattel slavery versus non-chattel slavery is an important distinction. And so I get frustrated when what I see is people wanting simple heuristics for figuring out what's right or wrong and navigating their lives that just don't do justice to the complexity of whatever issue it is that they happen to be addressing, whether it's what foods they should eat or what kind of laws should be made. As you're saying this, I began to think, well, wait a second, you know, if we can't draw lines and if everything's about the nuance, then how do we determine anything? You know, then how do we know what's good or bad or right or wrong? And I, I think one thing, um, uh, ironically, that, that doesn't change with nuance is that nuance requires humility and open-mindedness. And, and for someone to have a nuanced perspective, they have to be open to, okay, well, this is, you know, correct in these instances and incorrect in these instances. Sure. Well, so, I mean, I, I, that, that l let me talk about that because I think it's a really good question. Um, it, does nuance mean never having an opinion? Absolutely not. So I'm going to give, I'll give you an example. Let's take abortion. Um, I, I vote pro-choice and voting is a really great example of where the rubber hits the road when it comes to making a choice. At the end of the day, no matter how nuanced you think the abortion debate is, let's say you're, you, you're really uncertain, hypothetically. I'm not, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, let's say you're really uncertain. At, at the end of the day, you got to pull the trigger in the voting booth. So you either got to vote for or against the law, whatever law is being passed. And in that moment, what you do is you take all of your nuance and you tot it up on, uh, you know, on some kind of balance. And you say, look, I feel a little bit better about this 
law than this one, though I can see the arguments for the other side, vote, right? I, at the end of the day, I think that's gonna make for a better world or whatever it happens to be. That doesn't mean that you think the issue is easy or simple. It just means that at the end of the day, after you've thought about it long and hard, you are coming down on a particular perspective as one that you think is more likely to be right. Um, so it, it being nuanced doesn't mean not making decisions or not having opinions. It, it's, it's almost like an attitude towards the moments between your decisions rather than uh, an attitude towards the decision-making itself. Huh. And I, and I want to come back to that because I think the broader question is, you know, what is right and wrong? And if, if, you know, how do we use nuance and moral flexibility to make event specific and event appropriate decisions while having an underlying compass of right and wrong? That's a bigger question. The question I have before that is, so I, um, so Alan, several moments ago, you were talking about pain and how people who are in pain, you know, probably more often emotional pain than physical pain, um, belief and ideology and, 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 and maybe thought processes are, it, it's, you might believe something differently if you're in pain. You might want something to be true. I have a personal story I'll share in a bit, but you brought this up with Joe Rogan and you said, listen, and I think he misheard, I think he misunderstood you. And I want to mention what I mean by that, but you said, and, and, and I don't know if you caught it, but so you said, look, for example, what if someone on Twitter, Joe said, what a terrible person you are. And anyway, Alan, so what you had, what you intended to evoke is for Joe to say, oh yeah, I'd be so mad that I wouldn't even think what if what they're suggesting is true. And what if I am rude or whatever it is. Right. And I think the idea you're bringing up is that when someone insults us, if I say, you know, Alan, you're so um, argumentative that you might be, what do you mean? No, I'm not. No, you know, and you won't even think about what I'm saying. I'm not saying you would do this, but people in general, sure. and I think that's what you were getting at, but I think he took it the wrong way. And he thought you meant uh, if someone said something about him, that's not true. And you weren't saying that you're saying, what if someone said something about you that is true? And you would just funny. I don't, I, I can't, I don't uh, remember that particular but, exchange. Yeah. But, but, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's not about whether it's true or not. Honestly, it's just about whether it causes it. You're, you're not even going to be in a position to be assessing yeah. whether something like that, is, or you, you will be in a position to be assessing whether something like that is true, but you're going to end up in a, in a different place, perhaps. Um, or I can't even, I mean, I'd go even further than that. I'd say something like, you, you can't expect that person that you've insulted or the person who's being insulted or the person whose stomach hurts or the person who's scared of dying or whatever it happens to be, that you can't expect them to sit down and go about figuring out what's true or false in, the, in, the, in, in a kind of like dispassionate, you know, God's eye view of things. That's just, that's absurd. And I used to, I used to it, it's not even, it's not just absurd, it's cruel. Um, and I used to believe that that was sort of my job, right? It's like you wander around and it's, it's sort of vaguely Socratic, right? And show people all the things they don't know um, and then hope that that improves everybody and myself. But actually that's just kind of being a dick um, and not understanding that perhaps the person that you're talking to, you know, you know, maybe they like, maybe their kid, you know, maybe their kid got vaccinated and then came down with autism four weeks later. Does that mean the vaccines cause autism? Of course not. Does it mean that that parent is just like in a very different mental space than I am? And, and I can't expect them to be thinking about that in the same way I do and there, but for the grace of God, go I? Absolutely. That's what that means. 
there's this balance of emotional intelligence and empathy and kindness, but also there, you know, it's like you're saying about nuance, like certainly there's cases where you want to tell someone, you know, please don't walk across the street into traffic just because you're holding that luck, you know, like you you don't want to, uh, there are certainly times when you would want to correct someone and tell them absolutely and, and to, and to not do so would be negligence and to mean that you don't care about them, but, but there are times. Well, I want to be careful though. There are times where you want to correct people to stop them from walking into the street, but stopping someone from walking in the street is different from wanting to for different from telling them not to walk into the street. I get, I mean, it must be a spectrum. If that makes, if that makes sense, Um, you know, it's like sometimes it doesn't work to tell people things. In which case, what you want to do is stop the, like the ultimately what you really need to care about, one needs to care about for me at least, is actually preventing harm from coming to that person, not just go, not just telling them that harm will come to them if that's not going to be an effective way of preventing harm. But I, you know, I think we both agree there's nuance of sometimes you tell someone the truth, sometimes you don't. In the case of autism, you know, the kids has autism, maybe you don't want to tell her, well, as a matter of fact, you know, you're incorrect. Right. She doesn't need that. But if she's, but if someone that's close to you is, um, uh, doing something that they base, that they believe is based on reason that you believe could be harming them or others, then maybe you would step in and say, you know what? Right. Well, that's a, it's a tricky, right? It, it depends on trust. This is another thing that I think about a lot, which is why I was interested in what I was saying before in the genres, um, it's different to be talking to a human being who's your close friend than it is to be tweeting, than it is to have written a book, than it is to be on the radio taking calls from people. You know what I mean? These are all very different forms of communication. And I think they uh, they demand different kinds of, I don't know, awareness or attention, um, you know, yeah. And, and maybe, maybe the potential consequence to that person or to society matters. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, uh, I never know how to, and I, anyway, I tell the story, but my, so my, uh, yesterday would have been the birthday of my, she'd be 20. My sister was killed when she was 16, Jeez. Uh, three and a half years ago. So she horrific age to die at. She and her friend walking across the street and the, one and they both got hit by a car and died and uh and uh and i never and i don't know if i'll include this or not but um i uh long so i anyway so i i got kind of wrapped into the orthodox community and i spent a year of my life as a modern orthodox jew which ended about a year ago okay and I went to yeshiva in Far Rockaway and in Israel at Eish HaTorah, where my cousin taught. And I had, I was, I, I was full aware of like, okay, I, this is not because of trauma. I'm making this intentionally. I've argued with 700 rabbis, you know, Balt Shuvas, people who had become religious in their adult life after getting their, their, their PhD or whatever. And they said, no, this is real, you know, this is true. And so I was like arguing and arguing with these people. And I, 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 came to the conclusion, I believed purely intellectually. Um, and then it wasn't until looking back that, that I realized like, wait, no, this was totally uh, emotionally, but I've experienced it firsthand that I had no idea it was emotionally driven. Like, I truly believed it was irrational. Uh, yeah, it, there's this real emotional appeal. What is it, what, what was it that drew you? Was there a sense of, was there a way in which you felt like that community 
and, and, and the ways of life and truths that they embraced helped in kind of an explanatory way about your sister's death? Or was it that you felt a kind of comfort of, of belonging that kind of, or a combination of, like, what was it, yes. that, what was the draw for you? So that I can um, answer in it, retrospect. Yeah, so, right, okay, so I appreciate you saying retrospect because there's two different answers I can give. One is how I felt at the time, which is, oh, this is a rational decision, you know? And then the, the better answer is how I can answer it now retrospectively, why did I do, did I, did I do that? Um, they had answers. I mean, they, um, I think I really, 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 really deeply needed to have not like, like, why did this happen? Like, why? What was the, what was the answer? The answer is because, um, and, and I could spend hours talking about this. I'm, 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 I'm really trying to be concise and not let my brain just, cause like literally hours I could talk. I, I, I feel like I'm, I feel fasc- like I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by precisely this question. I would love to hear. I mean, yeah. you don't, you don't have to go on for yeah, hours. No, no, I, I mean, what was I, the, what was the answer to why? Yeah, so, 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 um, <laughs> Why, you know, I wake up every day, I have my coffee, go to work, blah, blah, go to yeah, sleep. Yeah. And then I'm one day I'm going to die. Okay. And there was something so beautiful about thinking, if you can even force yourself right now for when we got the phone for two seconds to believe that you're connected to something up there and your life has meaning, regardless of what you say or do or don't do or who dies, whatever, there's something deeper. It, it's, it's, it's very comforting. It's very what does it feel. What does it feel like? And, and, um, um I mean like physically and let me, and, and, let me and, 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 and so like when it happened, like, I mean, literally the day after it happened, I wasn't sad. I wasn't, I was a little crazy. I think I was literally, I had this door and people must've thought I was crazy. Cause I was literally saying like, you know what? Everything happens for a reason. This is like one day after. Yeah, yeah. I, the way, and I thank God that I was like that, that my brain had put this kind of cocoon around me to protect me from, and now three years later, I continue to have nightmares and I'm totally fucking traumatized. And uh, yeah, so I had this, it was this, I think looking back, it was a sense of, I needed for it to make sense. I needed for it to be a reason. You're saying, what was the reason? The reason I would ask rabbis, you know, what, not just my sister, why do kids die who have cancer? Yeah, yeah. Why do the yeah, Holocaust? The cl- why do the classic, Holocaust? the classic question of eagle? Right. right? Yep. And they and they and these they, and they would say, look, so everything happens like God makes everything happen, and basically, and they, they didn't say this in so few words, but basically, there's this kind of balance sheet stretches throughout time, and there's like a net positive to humans, and you want to be good. And I don't know if Judaism actually believes in reincarnation. I know it sounds like a Hindu idea. I actually think we do to some, like, it's like, there's this net benefit. So it's like, well, Noah in the ark, you know, they killed Noah and the, the, all these people drowned, but the, the, the benefit, the net was net was positive. Right. And the idea I, and, it, and this took like, it took a lot of questioning for them to say this answer. Cause it wasn't really clear. It's like, well, wait, why, why did God want these kids to die? And like, how is that meaningful? And what, and the answer is it's just, it's just all part of this master plan. And this is kind of a circular argument, but like it's all part of this master plan that you can't possibly understand. Yeah. Yeah. But it's part that's of a Job. Plan. That's Job. Oh. That's, I, it's my fa- It's my favorite book of the Bible, just because it's honest. You remember, have you read Job? No, I don't know. Oh man. It is. That's the hell of it. That's another thing people should do more often. Is just be like, no, I haven't read that. What is it? Oh, no, I, <laughs> often, I, often people are like, I've read it. Let me tell you what happens in Job very, very yeah. quickly. 
so he, you know, I don't know if you know the story, but like, you know, Satan's like, oh, uh, you know, God's like, hey, Satan, have you seen Job? He's great. And Satan's like, what if I torture the fuck out of him? And God's like, go for it. And so then Satan goes and kills all his kids and gives him all these sicknesses. And at the end, Job finally gets, finally breaks and, and questions God. And God basically says to him, who do you think you are? That's the answer. Job's like, why did, why did you do all this bad stuff to me? I'm a good guy, basically. And God says, who do you think you are to even ask? I made the whales. I made the stars. I made the ostriches. I, I, you are so much smaller and so much less powerful than me. That the very quite like, I'm going to ask you questions. You're not going to ask me questions. And then it ends. That's it. Wow. That's the answer. Huh. Which at least is not, there's no... He doesn't say because eventually everyone's saved. He doesn't say, you know, God doesn't say. He just says, who do you think you are to ask? Which to me, at least, is not very comforting. Uh, it, gave me the, it, the, it gave me the chills. Who do you think you are to ask? Wow. I mean, that's basically, he literally says, gird yourself. What do you say? Gird yourself as a man and I, and, and I will put questions to you. And then he just starts asking him, like, did you make the whales? Did you make that? It was a really, it's a great book. Um, wow. It's, it's, but yeah, but there was, a, but you're saying, there's a is, this, is, this, is, this a, is this a new book or I'm just kidding. Job? The okay. book. <laughs> Job, yeah. Pretty old. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I'm really, I'm terribly sorry. I, like that kind of thing, the like, everything happens for a reason. I mean, it's a really interesting line. I'm actually, I'm writing a book right now, a, a young adult fiction book in which one of the characters is religious and says that every once in a while. I, yeah. But it doesn't, but, but okay, well, so, so, but so now you're not in that community. Yeah. And Why that not? was, and that I think is more uh, interesting or unique than getting into it in the first place. Yeah. I was curious. So what brought you out of it, especially so, so, so soon? Yeah. So for me, logical reasoning, um, that's what did it. And so. Can I ask you another question yeah. about, about this? Sorry to interrupt, but uh, how has that changed your relationship? Like, so, so. So leaving that community now or having this realization, how has it changed your understanding of your sister's death? Like, did you lose something that was comforting or, or, or not? Like, in other words, is it tougher now in certain ways than it was before or do you, or, or not? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It does make sense. Probably tougher is the short answer. Okay. Um, yeah. But I will choose truth and a more meaningless and more painful life every day over believing something that I don't actually think is true. And I think meaning for me has to start with what I think is true. And so if, if, you know, if I don't believe something is true for me, then I don't want to derive meaning from it. And I'm not saying that other people should or shouldn't do this. Um, but yeah, for, for, for me, what, what I have established as truth has to be the, the foundation. Um, I, I have no doubt that um, like my cousins, for example, who are part of that community, they might have more like, quote, like meaningful life, maybe, because if you really believe that you're connected to something um, bigger, then it's really nice. But if, uh, but you know, in, in my opinion, it's so. How did it affect my the her death? Um, 
it's really hard to answer Alan because it's evolved so much over the last three years. Right. I, I don't yeah. want to correlate. And I don't mean to, I don't want to force you into talking about. No, no, but no, but, 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 but so like I um, in some ways better because it's more real. I think like I need to process it. So it's, it's, it's like more painful, but it's important. Your parents. Um, okay. You know, so like it's, it's kind of a, it's a short question you're asking. Like they're out, like they're in the best shape of their life. Their careers are going the best they ever have. They experience plenty of joy. And, but I mean, what do you think? You know, like they're not so, not well. So, do they, are they religious, your parents? No, no, they're not religious. So, that I hope, I mean, does this resonate with what you've heard from other people that people in pain seek answers because absolutely they need they absolutely. Need so, I mean, a great example from the last book I wrote. And actually, I mean, it's, you know, I'm writing, I'm working on something right now about, uh, Havana syndrome. Have you followed this? What syndrome? Havana syndrome. So you've, you've seen oh, this in the news. It's uh it's these, it's the, uh, there were people at a consulate in Cuba in Havana. Um, but then a couple of other people who have claimed that they were hit by microwave radiation and it's caused these headaches. And there's been all these pieces written in the times and all this stuff about like the, the secret Russian microwave radiation weapons <laughs> that these people who are getting bad headaches and their families, their kids, right? There's all this stuff about how it has to be microwave, secret microwave radiation weapons. And the NAS did this whole thing about it. And they were like, looks like it's true. Um, UFOs are another good example of this, although bracket that for now. Those people need a story. They need to be able to tell themselves a story that situates their pain in a kind of a, a cause and effect that they can just, I mean, one of the things we do to cope with pain and with our own mortality, right? I mean, why do we tell stories all the time with a beginning and an end? We tell these stories just to cope with our own our own place and in our own story that has a beginning and an end. And I think that when, when the ability to tell those kinds of stories is taken away, it can render you feeling like you are, there, there is no narrative and you're just kind of adrift on a sea. And so the same thing happens. So with naturalness, right? One of the questions people have is why, do, why do I get sick? Why are the people getting sick? Why does cancer happen? Why are people, you know, why is there an obesity crisis? Why is there a pandemic? And if you can sweep all of those questions into, or if you can, if you can answer all of those questions, not sweep, I don't know why I use that verb. If you can answer all those questions with, with one answer, that's wonderful. And if that answer is because things aren't natural, mm. right? It's sin is one version, right? That's the religious version. But if you can just say something like, there's one religious version, uh, you know, disordered desire, if you want to take Buddhism, whatever it is. If you can sweep all of that suffering into one explanatory framework, that feels good. Things get under control. Um, and there is a tremendous impulse to do that, I think. And yeah. I understand it at the same time. And I have to, you know, this is something now, I guess, you know, a ton of time left, but to respond to it now, maybe it's because I've never really experienced deep pain, like losing a sister at a young age or having cancer or whatever it happens to be. I've been miraculously lucky, as I said on Joe Rogan, knock on wood. Um, but, you know, one of the things that religious people have asked me sometimes, like, well, where, like, isn't your life, like, don't you feel meaningless? Where does your meaning come from? If you're not going to, are you just random? Like, where do you come up with stuff? And, and, and to me, as someone who, I mean, I just like, love, I love life. I just love it. It's just so great. I feel like life is full of meaning. There's like miracles 
everywhere. There's bonkers. I keep bonkers stuff. I mean, on Rogan, I brought that mineral, that like square of pyrite. I don't know if you saw this thing, but like I keep miraculous. Like this is a, this is, this shell. This is what's called a Venus comb. It's just a sea snail, but it's absolutely bananas. Like yeah. this thing like, like goes around the seafloor. And I keep these, you know, or like there's like a, there's a, like, I mean, I, they're, they're all, over, they're all over, like this thing. This, this is a great example. I should bring this back to religion. So this mineral here, this is called starolite. Now you can see it looks just like a, a Greek Orthodox cross. Hmm. That's how the crystal forms. It wasn't, it wasn't carved. And when people would see these, um, what they would do, here's another one. They're really cool. Um, they called them fairy, the, Jesus's tears. The theory was that like Jesus had wept on the ground or angels had wept and where the tears hit, it formed these crosses. So that, that there was this story, right? How else could it have happened that minerals would form in the shape of crosses, right? Surely everything happens for a reason. Whereas I actually think that for the meaning to exist, you can just stop at the, you can stop right at the crystal. Huh. Isn't this like, that's it. Right. It's just be, it's just extraordinary. It's an extraordinary. What a, what a, we are so small. Like, I guess where I get my meaning and this is where the pain comes in mm. is that it seems tremendously lucky. All of this seems tremendously lucky, right? It's the way a lottery winner, if someone's been strategizing, like maybe they like always check, you know, they buy the exact same lottery ticket in the same place at the same time. When you win, you're like, it worked. My strategy worked. Whereas what actually happened is you just happened to win the lottery, mm. you know? That word to, to feel to just stop at the meaning of Still like wonder. what a what a grand coincidence. How blessed am I? Simply by that. The problem is that when bad things happen, you don't feel so lucky. Hmm. Right. And when your stomach hurts or your sister dies or you've got cancer or whatever it is, hmm. all of a sudden you don't give a shit about that crystal or that shell. All you're wondering is why I'm... things are so horrible, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, you know, it's funny. Let me tell you another story. Here's yeah. a good story. This is from the Zhuangzi, uh, that book that I told you I, I wanted to study. So one of the stories in it is about Zhuangzi's wife dies and he's at her funeral and his friend Huizhi, good best friend Huizhi shows up. Huizhi is a logician. He's sort of like the, the straight man in the book. There's always these dialogues between, he's like Carl Reiner, right? Um, and so, you know, Huizhi shows up and Zhuangzi's is beating a drum and singing. And Huizhi is like, what are you doing, man? It's your wife's funeral. Like this is, this is even for you, this is out of line, you know? And Zhuangzi's is like, well, you think I wasn't sad for a moment? I was sad, but then I realized that like, this is all part of the grand scheme of things, right? Things are born, things are die, things die. I will, I will die one day. And, and to reject that grand scheme of things is foolish. Why would I do that? So why not celebrate her instead? That's the story. Hmm. Here's the follow-up to the story that's the actual story. So the class, I was taking a class on this from a great professor when I was an undergrad. And he said, he told us a story about the story. He said that he wrote about it. And he said, the way this works is that you, what you do is the Zhuangzi is taking suffering and transforming it into beauty. And the way it does that, he said, is imagine I'm walking through the, he wrote an article about this in which he told, he tells the story. Imagine I'm walking through the forest and a tree crushes my wife. At first I'm shocked and I'm sad, but then I see the blood and the bone splinters and they're mixed with the flowers and, this, and the plants in a beautiful way. And I immediately shift. And instead of resenting the truth of the situation, which is ridiculous because you can't change it anyway. 
you come to appreciate the beauty of the new situation. And he said, you know, when my wife read that, she was so hurt. Yeah. And she said, what a monstrous thing to write down. Well, look, I and get- that was the end. And that's the end of the whole story. So I don't know where that leaves anybody, but that's a, for me, it's more complicated than, you know, let go of attachment or something. Well, that's like interesting. That. I mean, it's a weird visual. It's not a good visual. It's one thing I, I understand the philosophy of let go of attachment, accept what is. And I, I, I believe that's, you know, there's a lot of truth in that, but I mean, that's really gruesome to say, Oh, her blood, it looks so beautiful. I mean, that's just like sick, right? That's sick. <laughs> It's monstrous, right? It seems monstrous. But at the same time, at the same time, you know, I've had personally now, I've had very, I've had very important religious experiences have happened to me in my life. And I call them religious because I don't really know what, what else to call them. Um, in which the world is sort of transformed into this like heavenly, beautiful nirvana. And I've, you know, I don't sleep at all for weeks at a time and everything's beautiful and everyone's a sage. Um, and during it's happened to me like five times. What kind um, of drugs? Or I'm just kidding. You know, it's funny because I've taken a lot of drugs in my life, but they are so the it's close to drug experiences. So there's certain drug experiences that I've had that are sort of like this, but again, this was for weeks at a time. Um, I guess we're not going to. It's a longer. Time. It's a longer story. We're yeah. not going to have time to discuss this. But I want to say. That, I mean, wait, that, that doesn't. Wait, you can't just go on and say it. But I'll say. It, but how, that doesn't sound like a normal. No. Thing. It doesn't sound normal for a lot. I still am wondering what's going on with them as, as I wonder sometimes whether they will, when it will, if it will ever come back. Um, I always wonder that each time I've had the experience, but what I wanted to say was one of the things about those experiences that makes me doubt them, not doubt them as like, did they happen or are they religious, but doubt them as like, is that the ideal way to be? Cause when I'm in those experiences, it feels like, right. It's like I'm being on ecstasy or something, right? Like you love everybody and everything is beautiful. But one of the things I can't understand in those experiences is pain. My own pain, because of course I suffer like everybody else. Like I've been insecure and depressed and cried and had arguments. And when I'm in those experiences, just the idea of being in pain is like totally incomprehensible to me. Like, I'm like, how was I ever upset? How was I ever sad about anything? Here I am in this magical nirvana. Um, That's amazing that you- It's amazing, but it's it's a problem because a problem that feeling because it's not nirvana we're not in nirvana this is not heaven this isn't paradise how do you know how do you know it's not nirvana I mean... well i know it's not nirvana because to say that out loud when someone's lost their sister is fucked up why i mean i you know i yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Or to say that to a person who just got diagnosed with stage four cancer, for a person who just got, and I don't mean to say it to them. I just mean that it is literally true that this is not paradise for, for so many people that, yeah. that, 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 to, that to have that be your totalizing view of the world, to me at least, is, is there something missing? You know, <laughs> There's something not, missing from you that. Know, it's not Hans, am I saying his name right? I don't know how to say it, but I know the person you're talking about. I mean, I, yeah, really, really hard life. But the idea is like, you know, if you just kind of breathe in, breathe out, um, there's no suffering in the present, right? And everyone can experience nirvana no matter their state, as long as they're appreciating what is. So there's some who would say that we are in nirvana. That's all I'm saying. I don't know. Yeah, they would. Here's the here the way. Here's the thing. Here's what. Here, and you asked me at the beginning, like, what is it that makes me tick, or something like that. And what I what yeah. I what, what I'm still trying to figure out 
is there's this line in the Tao Te Ching, and I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it. About a lot is there's this line about the sage. The sage is sort of like the 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 shengra. It's the it's the it's the kind of like fully actualized human being in classical Chinese thought. So the sage says the data Jing orders orders the world makes the world around them harmonious, but no one notices. They're invisible. It's like the it's like mitzvahs that you do anonymously, right? It's the anonymous. It's the highest form of charity according to Judaism, right? It's so the sage moves through the world and everyone becomes virtuous and the world becomes better. But the line is they all think they've done it themselves. In other words, they all think they've done it themselves. So they don't even see the sage. Hmm. So it's not like they go and listen to the Buddha. It's not like they read Thich Nhat Hanh or however it's pronounced or they you know read Martin Buber or whatever it is. This, the true sage, according to these texts, is invisible. You don't even know it's a sage. The sage could be my watch, for all I know. In, it's a sage in disguise, <laughs> right? And, 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 I've, I've, I, I, and it's interesting because it takes, takes the ego out. Like, like it's almost like, I, I remember I had this thought once I felt bad. Well, like, well, what's the point of being a sage if no one knows you're, you know, no one knows you're enlightened and helping them? What would the point even be? And then I realized what a ridiculous, unsagely thought to have, right? And so, so then the question is for me now, how do you, and this goes back to what I was saying before, right? About convincing people of the truth or whatever it is. I think there's a way in which what I'd really like to be able to do because it involves no power relationship. is just to be able to like make the world a little bit more harmonious without invisibly. Hmm. And that doesn't mean like people don't know that I exist, but what it means is beautiful mission. That I, you know what I mean? Like I could speak to people about stuff and they would hear it and then their, their lives would become better, but they wouldn't think like, oh, it's because this guy convinced me of X, Y, or Z, or like, now I follow Levinovitz's path. Mm-hmm. They would just like that somehow I could create communications that just helped people harmonize things of them of of themselves freely of themselves and so for example again now when i'm thinking about the savannah syndrome article that i'm writing this has changed from my first book and from my second book i don't want to convince people that havana syndrome is false which i believe right i don't think havana syndrome is microwaves but i don't want to convince people of that I, i i want to write something where people won't feel forced to believe anything at all, but it will make our collective search for truth and goodness better. I don't know. It's, it's sort of a highfalutin sort of thing, but it is something I think about, right? How can I write this without like shouting at people and like being present in the conversion? So, so Andy Norman, who's a philosopher I interviewed the other day, who was also on Joe Rogan like a week or two ago, his take on this and I, my impression of it is that it's, it's not about it's about uh, d- d- defeating, like going downstream to people receiving the information um, and changing how they, how you, how you critically think. So rather than telling someone these ideas are bad, saying there's good ideas, bad ideas, whatever. Here's how you should think about ideas. Here's how you should evaluate ideas and determine for yourself. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But here's the the framework. Because without that framework. You know, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and even in what I'm saying now, uh, I wouldn't want to say that other people should should do this. 
right? I mean, that would be a sort of a contradiction in terms anyway. So all I'm saying is for myself, hmm. um, that, that, that feels better to me. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, again, all this stuff depends, right? Being a parent is different from being like someone who's writing for the public is different from being a spouse or, or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think there's a, I think there's room for gentleness in a way I that I never, I never would have thought before. So the, no, I, I, cause I don't really understand how you would influence people to do it without influencing them, but maybe we could save that for another day. Cause I, cause I, you know, saying, oh, I want to tell them what to do, but I don't want to tell them to do. I, I'm, I'm curious what that means, but we could, we could, um, we could pocket could, that. Confession's a good way to do it. That's okay. one thing I'm looking at now. So just talking about the stuff that's happened to yourself, especially oh, things wow. that you've done wrong, hmm. not meant as conversion, but just meant as like honest and not like, you know, in a fake forced way, I, you know, uh, but like really reflecting on stuff you've gotten wrong and just owning it and calling it a day. I think that is one way to do oh. it. Um, that's made a big impression on me. Um, not when it's forced, but when it's earnest. That's um, really interesting admitting a fault in it with that's, that's analogous to the, what you're perceiving as the fault the other person's making. No, that's, that's what you can't do. Oh, what okay. you have to do is just admit the faults as they happen without right. an eye to converting other people. It's not but, for the other person. But if it's you're about Vanna syndrome, it has to be a, 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 a misstep in thinking you made that, that you believe is similar to that, that you're not saying explicitly, but that it, there's a connection Right. Yeah. The, so what I'm working, that's great. Exactly. So what I'm working on right now is figuring out how to write this article with, wh without secretly having the agenda. You do have, the, isn't that the whole point? Is that there's the agenda? Isn't that the whole, like you do have the secret agenda. Of that's where, no, that's, that's, that's where I'm starting with my own beliefs. What I need to do now personally is figure out how to write this in a way where I'm not just trying secretly to convince people to not believe it's microwaves. I need to do something else. I don't know what that's gonna be. What's your goal? Yet. So I think what my goal is, is, is to talk about why, I talk about how hard it is to figure out what the hell is going on. That's it. You like, why is it hard? Goal of helping people think better. Think, think, think better. Yeah, by being honest about my own difficulties. It is hard. The, the National Academy of Science came out and said they thought it was microwaves. What are you supposed to do with that? You know, um, you know what, what? all the people who are saying believe the experts, right? What, what do you do when the experts say something you think is false? That's where I'm at, right? So maybe instead of trying to convince people that what I think is true, I can tell them about my struggles with wanting people to believe experts, which I do, I'm a big fan of expertise, yeah. and also wanting to not believe the experts <laughs> on this particular issue. You're advocating for a way of thinking. You're saying, look, here are some mistakes I've made in my thinking out of just naive, naivete or arrogance or, or whatever it is, and now I'm more critical and here's how I'm more critical. Is that, are you doing that or are you just like, are you introducing the proper uh, structure or, 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 you know, say, look, here's how we be more critical. Otherwise we just spin around in circles and we don't know up from down. I mean, we have to have some kind of way to make sense of things, right? 
Do we? Gosh, you know, as I say to people, I'm not sure that we need some. I think we're actually making sense of things too often. I think we, if we did a little bit more spinning and a little bit sense, it's not like that's the danger. The danger is not that every, no one's going to know what to do. Everyone's already overconfident anyway. We already think we know everything. I, I like, do I don't know. think that, I, you know what I mean? It's sort of like when I say to people, like, you know, everyone's like, well, what does it mean to be a good person? Or how's it like, that's not 99% of the time. But not not having truth is dangerous. If you don't look, it's if, not. It's it, on a hierarchy of evil, it's the worst to believe a bad idea yeah, is true. Yeah. And, but it's, it's the second worst to not, because ignorance is, ignorance is better than thinking an evil idea is true, right? I'm with you. But ignorance isn't to be sought after. Humility, you're saying humility is good. I agree with you. But not knowing up from down also causes war. I mean, that, well, I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel that. I don't, it's not that I want to say there is no truth. It's that. Because that's that that's not what I believe. It's that I understand how difficult it is to make sense of a world in which we are being told competing ways of coming to truth by seemingly re very reliable sources, and that's a difficult world to live in. And there's no easy answer for what to do in that situation. And I want, I want us all to be able to live with that difficulty and talk about that difficulty with each other, because I think that out of talking about that difficulty, honestly, truth is more likely to emerge. Dang. So that's the framework. Talk that's about the framework. Talk about things. Absolutely. In a kind of Habermasian, I mean, you said you were philosophy, you know, sort of like Habermasian, like good dialogue in which we are honest and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Again, though, pain is always important. So I'm not going to force someone to sit down and yak with me if their stomach hurts. Thank you so much for your time, Alan. This was like really no. an honor and a pleasure for me. And I'll follow up with you. Um, and I really hope that at some point we get to continue the conversation about the yeah. meaning of life. And how to That'd be great.